Okay, with the cat out of the room, it's time to do another episode of There Will Be Movies. This is EnterTheRealWorld.com, and this is There Will Be Movies, a podcast covering 25 of our favourite, not best in our opinion, just our favourite movies from a given decade. This is Volume 1, 2000-2009, Episode 22, The Wrestler, Benjamin. How the heck are you? I'm good. I've I've eaten a bag of chocolate, which is probably ill-advised. Mm. Um, I've rushed home from work, and I need to go get the cat out of the room, literally. you made me a liar. No, leave. Gone. How unprofessional of me. Yeah, somewhat. I feel like garbage and haven't eaten anything, so we'll see if I can make it through the podcast. I will soldier on like a broken old wrestler trying to soldier I've, I've through make his a, last match. I've got to make a curry after this, so... Okay. This was chosen by you, which people who are listening to this and know me... We're just going to get this out of the way. The most embarrassing thing about me, I am a lapsed slash infrequent fan of professional wrestling, so I'm uniquely qualified to talk about this. However, I did not pick this. You chose this and I am shocked you picked this given I went through most of our friendship thinking Requiem for a Dream was like your favouritest film ever 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 and I was for sure thinking it was going to be on the list but you chose The Wrestler I think that like this stretch of four movies he does now are like all five star masterpieces and I kind of liked that not that we're going to bookend it but like we're going to finish this series or one of the last episodes is going to be The Wrestler and one of the first episodes the next one's going to be Black Swan spoilers (sighs) for (laughs) like a year from now Um, oh god yeah I mean, these two movies kind of... There was originally an idea that, like, it was going to be a romance between a ballet dancer and a wrestler. Um, oh, right. was, like, an idea for the script. Rather than a stripper, it was going to be a, a ballet dancer. Okay. And the kind of two scripts kind of, like, slowly parted. And obviously, like, Robert Siegel doesn't have any involvement in Black Swan. But I just kind of like the kind of, like, flip nature of the wrestler and Black Swan as being, like, the two movies from Aronofsky that we would cover. Even though I think The Fountain is a tremendous movie, and but I also wouldn't force you to watch it because it is <laughs> almost incomprehensible and Requiem for a Dream is the first 18 I ever watched I think yeah. and I was part of a video game forum kind of like when I was 13, 14 years old and of one course. of the site, site admins posted this like really long glowing review of Requiem for a Dream and so me being 13, 14 years old and highly impressionable from this guy who like works for this website I was like I'll go watch this movie and it fucking destroyed me <laughs> and so I kind of like I went back and filled in Pi watching mm. that and just kind of like oh wow Pi is really good really mm. interesting like my first like proper independent tiny movie shot black and white in new york for literally no money yeah and then i was on a plane to i want to say florida would be the like probably it was a long flight and they had the fountain playing on the flight and i was like oh That's you know not what? a place to watch that <laughs> i watched that on the flight on the tiny little back screen like not even like modern day like, like decent screen kind of thing it was like one of those like back of the screen yeah. you have to tilt it a little bit to get like a clean image to watch the fountain which is one of the most visually gorgeous and stunning sound-wise movies I've ever seen and watched it on the back of this thing and came away from thinking like this is the, maybe the best movie I've ever watched in my life like wow. my little kind of like 15 year old self kind of going like wow this has changed my life but you didn't want to put me through it <laughs> I didn't want to put you through it um, and then obviously I've watched it so many times since then I own the mm. Blu-ray and all the rest of it but like yeah that was my like the first these first three Aronofsky movies I saw in like at home on DVD and in an airplane and I still completely and utterly love them 
Mm. And so this was like, after the fountain completely bombed, Aronofsky kind of like went away for a few years. Like he was rumored to be directing an episode of Lost, which he had to drop out of. He was going to do the, the question mark episode in season two, but he never got around to doing that. I think, I don't know if he was on a Batman or a, or a, yeah, a, a he was movie in between these two. I don't know if he was in line for either of those things. He was going to make like year one and it was going to be real fucking weird. Go listen to uh, the Tape Crusaders and enter the real world. Com. I think either bef- in our Batman Begins episode or our like Schumacher double bill episode, I, I think I got into his ideas for year one, but it was it was out there. <laughs> yeah. So he so he like he he's circling superhero movies, but the Fountain bombs. I, I think kind of people leave leave him be. Maybe there were cursory talks of him doing Wolverine Origins. I can't remember what yep. the order is. He definitely signed on to do the Wolverine though. He did one of the most dull <laughs> films. <laughs> In that genre. Yeah, but before that, he kind of, like, recoups his losses and does this tiny little movie. Like, it's only made for $6 million. Mickey Rourke is completely, like, Uncastable. Not <laughs> yeah, uncastable in any movie. Just kind of go, like, if I can make this work, then maybe yeah. I can have a career again. And, and you know what he did? He got him a part in Iron Man 2. So, all <laughs> the greatest, The greatest legacy of this movie. I yeah, my and, birth. Yeah. So I'm, like, little of what at this point. So it's 2008. So I'm 16 years old at this point. Just kind of going, like, I want a new movie from this guy i want to go see it in a cinema and so i'm following every bit of news about this movie and yeah i was obviously aware it was coming because there are all these stories in the wrestling world of like oh yeah like nicholas cage is going to all these wrestling events they're making a movie apparently and then it obviously would morph and we'll talk about that in a minute but we've covered most of what we normally talk about at the beginning here um robert siegel used to be a writer for the onion and then he just comes out with this fucking script as like whoa wow and he would go on to do the founder which i think that makes logical sense but then he also did stuff like turbo which was the animated snail yeah. movie i think i mean big big fans really good which is kind of like the flip of this which is um pat oswalt as like a huge fan of an american football team okay. uh, oh no sorry new york is the new york giants i think is uh, who it actually is and yeah it's just one of those kind of like like this it's kind of like someone who obviously understands the world of this doing a kind of like commentary on what it means to be immersed in this world perhaps yeah. to kind of like damaging levels. Yes, well, I mean, the the feedback to this was generally that two-sided coin. It's either, this is a wonderful sort of look into this, and also, this is a harmful sort of... Not all of them are like this, and I think the people that are like that are just a little bit sensitive, and I think it's like, we're not saying every retired wrestler is like this, and there are... It's just, you know, this this is what can happen. Robert Siegel is in the movie. Uh, He gets an autograph from Mickey Rourke near the beginning. But let's do what we normally do here. So, released December 17th, 2008 in the US, but slid into January 16th, 2009 in the UK. We talked about 2008 last week, but if you want to talk about sort of the opening numbers for this movie and, you know, what it was up against at the time. Yeah, so uh, it opens uh, number eight at the UK box office with a um, equivalent of 1.8 million dollars, but it opens up behind such classic movies as Slumdog Millionaire, the future best picture winner of that year, Seven Pounds, the movie where um, yep. Will Smith commits suicide. Yep. Um, <laughs> Role Models, really good movie. Yeah, pretty good. It's the only movie to use um, <laughs> Christopher Mintz Plus well. Other than Superbad. Other than Superbad and Kick-Ass. It's like those three movies are the only movies that understand. Look, his cameo in Pitch Perfect is the stuff of legend, so... <laughs> they didn't even Valentine. invite him back for the sequels, did they? <laughs> no, they didn't. No, they didn't. My Bloody Valentine, Bride Wars, Beverly Hills Chihuahua, and Defiant... <laughs> 
Sorry. Yeah. Okay. I watched this movie opening day at the Bracknell Odeon in in Bracknell. That's a funny place for the Bracknell Odeon to be. I know it is. I was. I, I. I don't know why I did the 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 confirmative there. This was the same screen that I saw Whiplash in about six years later. Nice. Um. So like this is this is a very good screen for me. Is going to see movies in this particular cinema for whatever reason. Yeah. These um, two Beverly Hills Chihuahua. All the hits. <laughs> And then I watched this movie and kind of like the final scenes kind of like so completely utterly destroyed me. I just kind of had to sit there in kind of like stunned silence for a little bit next to my friend. And then I had to overhear two people loudly who were sat behind the entire movie walk out and go, it's like, well, that was fucking bullshit. There wasn't even the like WWF in there or anything like that. Aww. And it was like the most painful thing. Like, and obviously, I know nothing about wrestling. I've never watched wrestling in my life. What I've got know is like osmosis from people who watched it at school. You, are you saying um, you're better than Werner Herzog? Yes, I'm <laughs> better than Werner Herzog. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like watching these two people go out. Even like I understood that's like no, this is a completely different brand of wrestling to the kind of like mainstream, worth millions and millions of dollars yeah, kind yeah. of like thing that you that you were expecting this movie to be about. Well, that's the point. It's about what that millions and millions of dollar wrestler can turn into and it, it can go down this path it is 109 minutes i think it is a good length i don't think it there's anything in there that i would be like well this portion sucked let's get rid of it it is really lean especially in terms of like there's literally only three characters who have like any significant speaking roles <laughs> i think like the character like the two people who have like the most words apart from like those main three are mark magolis who's like daronofsky's like most frequent collaborator hmm. and judah friedlander from 30 rock I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like those two, and that's about it, really. So you know, you already said six million dollar budget, tiny, tiny, tiny. It did make forty five million dollars. Helping to keep that budget to six million, Axel Rose donated Sweet Child of Mine for free. They only paid Mickey Rourke a hundred grand, some of it in cash, and Bruce Springsteen wrote them that gorgeous song for free as well. Um, I'm sure he made some money off it himself, but yeah. I they... mean, he it's a bonus track on the album he had out around then, which I think is. Part Part of the reason why it wasn't at the Oscars as well. But That's uh, yeah, bullshit, the- man. Like it was, he wrote it for like they went backstage at his gig and he played it for them acoustically. He's like, oh, here's what I've got, and it's like, how does this not an Oscar? So, oh, whatever. It's such a, such a weird thing where like the Oscars normally have five nominations for best song each year, and this was the year where they kind of came out and went like three <laughs> this year we do three yeah. two of which are going to be from slumdog millionaire and that slumdog millionaire soundtrack is really good but it feels utterly bizarre to kind of like completely snub look, the boss writing a song for this movie look the oscar music category is bullshit three six mafia won a fucking oscar that's that's <laughs> bullshit anyway as we said Seagull wrote this movie it was featured on the hollywood blacklist this script aronofsky's company were like yep we'll we'll get this going fuck searchlight ended up buying distribution rights for like four million dollars or something like that so almost the entire budget of the movie now darren aronofsky says that mickey rourke was always his first choice but due to who that man was let's say let's not be unkind and say is they had to look at some other people one of those was sylvester stallone but he had done rocky balboa in recent history have you seen rocky balboa i've not seen rocky balboa i've not seen any of the rocky movies apart from the first one ah <sighs> 
right. Well, there's a... No, we're not doing all of those. <laughs> Rocky Balboa is wonderful. It does some of the things this movie is doing, and I think it does some of them better, but it, overall, it isn't hitting this level of, like, emotional and technical brilliance. But, like, the one last fight type thing, and... Anyway. So they thought, you know, that's too similar. Let's let's not go down that road. Nicholas Cage is the most famous, uh, you know, like... I think some people tell it as, like... It was Nicolas Cage's role and then he got cold feet and backed out and they replaced him with Mickey Rourke. But depending on who you ask, he either decided he needed a lot more time to prepare and wasn't willing to do steroids. <laughs> what a shocking stance. Um, <laughs> or he was asked politely to step aside for Mickey Rourke. And yeah, I think Aronofsky says one thing, Cage says another. But yeah, he, he did some training. He attended some wrestling shows for research. He was spotted ringside a lot. And it was, yeah, it was a hard... I can't imagine Nicolas Cage doing this at all like I'm just seeing him as Cameron Poe in Con Air but with a little bit more muscle and so like, I, I don't know I just I, I think you'll find he'd be more like his Superman role when he had the long hair <laughs> noted horrible racist asshole Hulk Hogan claims he was asked to do it Aronofsky's like fuck no he wasn't asked to do it there is no reason anyone would have asked him to do this it wouldn't have made sense because I mean you you alluded to it like the like millions of dollars wrestling and like I think it's kind of tricky throughout the film to gauge what level of fame he was at and I don't think he was like a Hulk Hogan level of wrestler like the world's most famous wrestler I think he was a known name within this industry on a national stage but I don't think he was like a huge 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 millionaire breakout mainstream star or anything so I don't think it would have made sense to cast the most recognisable wrestler of all time. Who would, you, who would you, who would you like, Roddy Roy Piper? That kind of uh, level? Like or? a Roddy Piper, maybe like a Dusty Rhodes. Just these people that were like very big in their sort of territory and then weren't quite major national stars. I don't know. Um, it's... 1980s wrestling is very different kind of like what it became in the 90s, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I mean, it was all, everyone still believed it, you know, so it was a little bit hackier and then the 90s it all became very like Jerry Springer and soap opera and weird sex when stuff. Does, when does Vince McMahon? Vince McMahon took his company uh, national in the late 80s, in the mid to late 80s I think, and then, yeah, the Hulk Hogan was the hottest thing going in the sort of late 80s to early 90s. He's a horrible man, but he became the world's most famous wrestling owner. Mickey Rourke was not a fan of this script either. He's not a fan of wrestling, but Aronofsky let him rewrite all of his dialogue. So he was like, okay, and uh, he did it. <laughs> really, it really does sound like I, the one of the things I really love about this is that like all of Mickey Rourke's lines, they just have a really nice kind of cadence and flow to them. Like they feel very natural coming out of him. Yes, 100%, which is why it was sort of shocking to hear he didn't give a shit about wrestling because it's like, it seems like you really get this and like, you feel very natural here. Well, like, I mean, obviously, like a bit of backstory on on Mickey Rourke is obviously like he he was the kind of like pretty boy actor back in the kind of eighties and early nineties, yeah. and then he kind of disappeared and did boxing. Yeah, he sure um, did. <laughs> and basically came back, and his face was just completely fucked up from doing this, and it really did kill his career because he was the kind of heartthrob mm -hmm. guy back in the day. Yeah, and like, and then and then so it kind of feels like this this is one of those movies that. Does feel like very metatextual in terms of like this is a guy who's big in the 80s who is just chasing the kind of like nostalgic high of back then can you imagine in like the early 2000s saying one day robert downey jr and mickey rourke will headline one of the biggest movies of well not of all time but a huge huge movie <laughs> like for yeah, disney like, <laughs> well yeah, not disney at the time but yeah 
it is utterly bizarre to think that like even a year after this because obviously like Robert Downey Jr.'s like career is kind of like both of them have this big comeback this year really I mean RDJ's obviously done a couple of kind of like big things but this is the year that Iron Man comes out and Vicky Rourke ends up with an Oscar nomination at the end of it all but yeah which he deserved which he deserved so before we get into the actual movie what do you think is his better role do you think he's better here or do you think he's better in Sin City which is like the other big kind of like Mickey Rourke role that probably like helped him get uh, I think he's better here. I think it's like a, it's an emotional ranged performance. Like, and he has achieved a total lost in the role. I'm no longer looking at Mickey Rourke. I am looking at Randy the Ram Robinson. Like, that he has done it. And I feel, yeah, he was kind of a laughing stock for a while and like oh, Mickey Rock and then he fucking crushes it with this I was like whoa where did that come from for some people for me it's this like obviously he's you know Sin City's very cool and he's very I think I think it, he's but... my favourite actor in Sin City I think he's the person who's kind of like most on the level of what that movie's trying to be well I think we can all agree Josh Hartnett's opening scene <laughs> is the best thing in Sin City but yes <laughs> yeah Mickey Rock uh, very memorable uh, in Sin City as well I mean I, I think he should have won the Oscar for this I've seen Milk. It's fine. I don't <laughs> think the the best bit of that movie is Sean Penn. Look, you can't stop Sean Penn at the Oscars. He's going to win them. I don't. It's just it's just one of the things where like this. this so I I I don't know if I said it on the podcast. I said just to you where like these kind of movies of which are just like the main selling point of them is an actor doing a good performance are never mm. my thing. And Milk feels like that kind of thing where like the selling point of that movie is this is Sean Penn embodying this kind of like very famous political figure from. America who's very important to kind of like the gay rights movement whereas this is this feels different in that I think Aronofsky is a more interesting visual director than Gus Van Sant was on Milk wow uh, <laughs> yes <laughs> And also, I just think that like the, there is something here where like, they are creating this character whole cloth for this movie, which I mean, obviously, like it, it, an acting performance is an acting performance, but I think there is just something so fully realized about this character in this world in this movie, and how perfectly that he manages to embody it, that just kind of like elevates this performance above above what Sean Penn is doing in that in in Milk. I mean, I'm also annoyed that the, the, the rest doesn't get Best Picture nomination, but this is the last year that the Oscars do the five nomination things, mostly mm-hmm. spurned on by the fact that the Dark Knight didn't go and get a nomination which I mean like those two movies both probably should have been in the top five movies of the year over stuff like The Reader and Frost Nixon but that's Oscar bait (laughs) well let's do it so professional wrestler Randy the Ram Robinson was maybe the biggest act in the business one of them anyway 20 years ago but you cut to now and he is working small local shows struggling with both his money and his age or his health you know they go hand in hand so I think the opening montage the sort of 80s magazines and the like the pounding audio over the top of it and everything and then moving straight to the shot of him coughing in a corner of like a fucking elementary school classroom like that's like an iconic shot from this movie him sitting in the distance in that corner no extreme close up or anything it's just it's very jarring it is very like yeah this is this is what it can be like some wrestlers are working shows in front of like 50 people or less and I mean I don't know how many of them are in fucking schools but like it didn't strike me as like out of sorts but I would imagine it was probably a bit of a shock for some people to see something like this like him getting cha- 
changed in a school classroom. Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a great kind of like shift from like you expect it to be something like kind of like monumentous and this this huge kind of like triumphant moment, and it's just not even down to kind of like when he gets paid at the end of it, and the guy's and just like, oh, <laughs> he gets shorted because they didn't make as much money for the whole event as he thought. So it's like, yeah, well, here you go, this is all you get. Next, this is all you get. Yeah, you're coming. You're coming to this next event that I'm doing, even though I've not paid you what I told you I'd be able to yeah, pay you. A hot dog and a handshake, brother, brother. That's a thing. Some wrestlers get paid a hot dog and a handshake when they're starting out. And he's like living in this trailer, which he gets locked out of because he hasn't paid his rent. He sleeps in his van, and it's you know it's a very carny road warrior kind of life when you're coming up. A lot of sleeping in cars and on floors and stuff. But like to see this guy that you know if we are to take that opening montage like you would expect this dude to at least have like a big fucking house somewhere and you are you never find any of that out like what his life was like then you just hear him telling stories about the good old days and there's never any allusion to like oh i used to have this like giant fucking mansion but it's like you are left to think well he must have had a house and things went very bad for him and now he's in this trailer. It's just, again, like they're really hammering at home immediately and like seeing him taking shifts at a supermarket but no weekends because uh, he still is wrestling and he's wearing the fucking hearing aid and everything. Like, yeah. It's I, so I, jarring. I love how this movie shot because this is... If you've seen the other Darinovsky movies, there's kind of like something very unique visually about them. Yeah. Like there's a lot of kind of like intense cutting and stuff like that. And then this movie comes out and it's not that. He's it kind just of like wanders. Like the camera just sort of drifts around. There's a lot of long shots and a lot of improvised takes and and, and I mean one of my favorite things is that there's a, a fairly iconic shot that Aronofsky did was called the story cam, where he attaches a rig to an actor at their waist with the camera kind of in front of them. So when you walk, the background kind of moves, but the person stays in the same place in the frame and he kind of like inverts it in this where it's a handheld camera but you're following the actor um, all, all the shots of him like wandering through the physical space of like the supermarket or wherever you're so invested you're like, you're right there with him uh, yeah it, it's just it's literally just shots of his back but it's a really arresting back for whatever reason like there's so much going on just in watching him kind of navigate these spaces yeah. just like this, this physically large dude with the age inappropriate long blonde hair shall we say so it's like even when he is in his like full get up like it's a big fucking dude and it's like oh you're visually striking but then you've got the in his everyday life him having the hearing aid and like I think his coat has got like duct tape on it and stuff like that to repair it and yeah it's it's very it's very humbling um so after he works another local show he has pitched a 20th anniversary rematch with his most legendary rival the Ayatollah um <laughs> some there were some international hard feelings <laughs> about, about this character but uh they are, of course, sort of parodying uh, the, the Iron Sheik, who was this sort of Middle Eastern stereotype wrestler, and he was a big enemy of Hulk Hogan, who was Captain Americana. So, again, I don't get the feeling that he's supposed to have been Hulk Hogan big, but, you know, that's kind of what they're invoking. So this is a real WXW show, this first one. Many of the wrestlers backstage are just playing themselves, being called their real names. But most of the ones that speak directly in camera shot are going by made-up ones. Uh, like, the guy that talks to him before the match, I, I think he's called 
like Tommy Rotten or something in the film, but he didn't go by that for realsies. But he's one of the people that helped train both Nicolas Cage and Mickey Rourke. And he is nobody, but they gave him this role of having the first match on screen uh, with Mickey Rourke. And I really find the sort of match walkthroughs that they do backstage really fascinating, personally, because like everyone knows wrestling is fake, and you have this assumption that they like rehearse the whole damn thing like in a in an empty gym or something like move for move and it's like no this is what it's like they just sit down and just verbally are like okay we'll do this here's a thing i've got a thing that was like really popular about the movie from like wrestling fans was the comment about don't work the leg everybody works the leg work his neck because it's so true like like they pick a body part and they just like attack it boringly until the crowd gets to a bit of a like come on and then the good guy has a comeback yeah it, um, it, it makes it it makes it like the what i really enjoy about this is kind of everyone knows that stuff is scripted and the winner's going to be decided beforehand based on the billing or based on what yep. the narrative that they're trying to sell in that wrestling league at the moment's going to be. Yeah. But, like, this shows, A, how physically demanding this shit is. Yeah. Um, like, because, like, these people are all fully ripped, fully, like, in-shape people. Yep. Really. Um, but also just, like, how it's kind of a bit more like improv. It's like improv fighting. Yep. Absolutely. And where like you know you know how it's going to end. You know what you're you're aiming for. But the yeah. whole point is to put on a show and to just kind of like go with the flow of like what makes sense in that point of view. Yeah. Like and you see it a few times in matches where like people see that things are going like sideways or not going how they should be going. And so they kind of go like, right, okay, we're going to do something different now. Yeah, that is precisely right. You feed it. You work the crowd. If they're not into a certain thing you're doing, you try something else. And like you see it throughout where it's like, you know, use his leg. And he's like, okay, yeah. (laughs) It's that guy with his leg. Um, You get to see him preparing the blade in his wrist tape ahead of time. I know for sure most people think that blood in wrestling is done via like little blood packs or or blood pills or, you know, like, I don't want to say squib because those like explode but you know that kind of thing surprise motherfuckers they cut their fucking heads open with little concealed blades and i do have a question for this but so obviously like he he has a head hit beforehand and that's when he like then razor out and Mm -hmm. cuts his head a little bit and then he gets a second head hit is it supposed to be that he got the cut from the first one or is he preparing so when you see shit like this they take a big hit to the head the other guy does something like preposterous so the crowd is looking at him the other guy will just be laying face down covering his head and stuff so he can do this without everyone staring at him and then they'll like have him get hit in the head more so that like it flows a bit more not not, like full on punching in the head but if you just give him a bit of a concussive force to the head it will like make it flow more and yeah and you can even see like when because obviously like he gets the like two successive hits after this and he like stops it. but you can tell that like he's stopping himself yes somewhat to kind of like cushion oh, yeah. the blow the way it is it's like it's not that they're not making any contact it's just that it's sort of a controlled contact like boxers know how to pull punches so you can hit someone and make it look harder than it is and it's a kind of a lot of that there is a lot of sort of phantom striking where they've missed completely but it's like you know you're doing this shit live like you don't get to do a retake so it's like you have to make a decision in the moment do you acknowledge that they missed and not react to it or do you pretend they hit you and go flying and sometimes to hilarious results but there is often a degree of just like 
they're hitting them just not as hard as they possibly can and it's a weird fucking thing like the stuff that looks really painful probably isn't and the stuff that looks easy probably is quite painful <laughs> just the yeah, simple I mean, act of falling to the mat is very stressful on your back you get the point where like he's later on when he like like so like after after this match he goes to the strip club and meets with Cassidy. a favorite of uh, Cassidy a favorite stripper of his played by Marissa Tomei who is a stunning <laughs> one of the um, most beautiful women to ever live on this earth yeah, who was nominated for an Oscar for this role who she's really fucking good in this movie <laughs> possibly a bit too naked for a vast majority of it but yeah. <laughs> that's neither here nor there but like he's he's explained to her there's a scene where he's kind of going through different injuries that he's suffered over the years yeah. and none of them none of them are like oh this was like a punch that I took it's like oh I jumped out the ring and... I fell wrong I yeah I accidentally got caught with this yeah there is a lot of that for sure she's really fucking good and I really like on his way in and I like him like selling or offering to sell painkillers to the bouncer because a lot of wrestlers have a painkiller addiction and have a plentiful supply of painkillers and stuff like that but you see like this group of dudes like rejecting Cassidy for being too old and these two are like mirrored in their sort of you know they do very different things but there is this core similarity of both of them are a little bit too old to be doing what they're doing and it's sort of a like having to play to a crowd in a way and it's a little bit of a carny type hard sell type business where it's like you have to go and court their money kind of thing and like they're both just want to be well she wants to get out and he very much doesn't is the <laughs> difference but yeah him like talking to her about his career casually while she's doing a lap dance it's like you know immediately he's i mean i'm not saying he's getting no sexual gratification from this but like he is paying for her companionship he's paying for attention quite frankly and, like, i mean yeah, yeah i mean we don't we don't know how long it's kind of been working but it's obviously he has got this massive affection for her yeah and... i'm not saying he's never sat there and been like fuck yeah but like he seems to just be like i've come here to pay to talk to you and like if you're naked cool i think she is sexualized but it's not in the kind of most in your face way it's like because obviously like you you see a lot of her in this movie and it is yeah. objectification but it's also kind of like well this is the atmosphere that we're in he's really cutting himself open he's really taking some big hits she's really stripping i guess yeah like... i mean it, 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 it's just very interesting to compare it to something like hustlers which is a, a really good movie from this year mm. which has so many scenes in strip clubs but I there's no nudity that's impressive. But there's also, like, I think there's two male actors who have more than kind of, like, five lines of dialogue. Yay! Um, it's, it's a really, refre- like, female-directed, female-written, movie-starring, like, female, like, women in all the kind of major roles. It's just really good, and it's all about female friendship. And it's just kind of interesting to watch that movie made in 2019 versus this movie made in 2008. And compare, like, these two, like, the two, the one of the best performances I've seen this year, one of the best performances I saw in 2008 was Marissa Tomei in that, in that movie, or in this movie and J-Lo in Hustlers and it's very interesting to kind of compare the ways in which they kind of treat female sexuality in that J-Lo is also one of the most attractive women in the world Yes. if you have a chance go find her first pole dance scene in Hustlers because it is genuinely one of the most like erotically gratifying things that you will see in Hi, cinema welcome and she's... to the real world where we're giving out like porn suggestions to each <laughs> but other she's, but she's fully she's fully cloaked and fully in control of yeah. kind of like how her sexuality is being taken yeah. and and it, it is different. I mean, it, this is probably like that more realistic, quote unquote, kind of like interpretation of what a strip club's going to be. Yeah, it's not um, a glamorous one. Like, this is a like rundown strip club that, you know, not a huge 
number of girls working there, not a huge amount of clientele. Like, no, I mean, this is this is New Jersey. This is very much not the like. <laughs> no, you can just stop there. This is New Jersey. <laughs> this is New Jersey. Yeah, it's just it's just interesting to kind of compare these two movies and the difference in in tones over the last eleven years, and they can still both give two of the best supporting actress performances I've seen. And you you mentioned him like showing her all of his like war wounds, and she like compares him to Jesus in Passion of the Christ, and like yeah, you've got the hair for it. It's like mm, don't think. Jesus was blonde, but okay. And I like that, you know, he continues to pay for lap dancers, but he can't cover his rent. And it's like, I understand that this is a common thing where someone has a large amount of debt, but still spends small amount. Because it's like, you know, it's not like that $60 or whatever was going to cover his rent, but you know, it's just sort of a sign of where his priorities are, and like, he has to do what he has to do, I guess. I like him afterwards buying the steroids, because you know, he's taken this big match, so like, we see him over the next few minutes like preparing for it all and like you know like he gets the dye job and the spray tan and he buys these steroids and i love this giant meatheads like really fast maths you know because like, he's like yeah you got this you got this yes that's 35 that's 50 that's 500 i love i love the kind of like he's not because he's not just buying steroids he's buying like so much other shit as well and this guy's just like do you want insulin do you want this you're like over the counter medications he's selling him but like, like i got viagra i got whatever you need man like you're old or just you know you use a lot of these things so maybe you uh, have erectile dysfunction this dude got busted for steroid possession in real life after this movie so <laughs> i don't know if they just literally went to a gym and found some huge fucking dude and were like could you play a steroid dealer he's like fuck yeah i can so we then see one of the more famous aspects of the movie we see randy working a hardcore match which is a a very violent use of weapons style sort of just freak show look at all the blood and carnage style match uh, against the infamous necro butcher you get more money if you do this essentially and after receiving medical attention in the back he vomits and then is rushed to hospital so i like them going shopping for plunder ahead of time like cruising this supermarket and like buying like baking trays and like bug spray and all this sort of stuff i remember louis theroux did a fucking documentary on wrestling his original run of these documentaries before he got like huge and there was an episode yeah where he like interviewed loads of wrestlers and there was a guy who would just sit there hitting himself with like big metal objects and stuff and like trying them out and it's like jesus this is it's a bad scene man necro butcher is one heck of a person his like stoner poet ramblings and like calling everyone sir and just the giant fucking cannabis leaf tattoo this is 100 percent necro like what you see here is what he did for his not lengthy career because I mean you see the kind of shit that he does like of course he couldn't do it for too long and he's saying like how oh you can maybe throw me off the ropes once but I can't run too much because my knee is fucked (laughs) yeah I mean mean, this feels like kind of like they've just kind of gone with this guy who is he is the most famous like deathmatch wrestler in North America of this era for sure there are some dudes in Japan who do real fucked up shit but yeah this guy I mean it's it's just some of the stuff he goes like are you alright with staples and he's like oh it, it doesn't hurt that much going in but coming out it's gonna it's gonna give us some blood loss yeah. you see like I, I love the way this scene is kind of done because like you Where don't you see think, the you, end and then yeah yeah you see the end and you don't think they're gonna show you that much and even then like they're both just coated in blood yeah and and it just looks like because what it, it's like he's just been dumped in the table and he kind of like finishes him off then and yeah, he like hits him with the big thing and just pins him and then like you know as he's getting treated by the doctor it's not that like each wound you see how he got it but just you know 
know, as he's being treated, you flash back 14 minutes previously and you just see all this fucking wild shit they're doing. And... I mean, even even just the kind of casual shot where, like, he, you get that shot of his back and he's walking towards him to pick up the, the window and you see the tacks that are in his back <laughs> and it's just like... It's just so yep. messed up, but yep. like all of it's done in camera, and you can. T- I don't know whether or not Mickey Rourke actually did some of the stuff that he does, because obviously, like, there's stuff involving barbed wire that <laughs> I think he did an awful lot of it. I don't know if he did all of these incredibly violent moments here. Yeah, because like they they did these matches, didn't they? Like yeah, they they, 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 would, they they would go to like local wrestling things and yep. just kind of go like, we're going to do a wrestling match as part of the regular evening of. Yeah, they would like slot it in between like the rest of the show so that the crowd are like there for it and stuff and they would you know just pick a weekend here a weekend there and and shoot a match a little bit like there's only like 14 minutes of wrestling in in the movie i don't know how much they actually filmed but no but it it, but it's some of the most memorable stuff in the movie it's kind of similar to what they did on star is born where like bradley cooper would kind of like go and follow he went to a chris christopherson gig at glastonbury Mm. and basically did like an opening set for chris christopherson at glastonbury which is why in the movie like it's actual shots of a Glastonbury crowd and they yeah. didn't fake it which is one of the most like impressive things about that movie yeah it is these are all real companies most of these wrestlers are real wrestlers all of the wrestlers are real wrestlers just some of them are changing their stage name but it's real crowds knowing that they're gonna be in a movie so you know probably being a little bit more energetic than they might be it's fucked and it's again like I don't know if it's a complete shock to the system in the way that maybe seeing how they do blood might have been uh, in that first match but this is a whole other avenue of, of wrestling that some older stars do get pulled into doing because it does pay more it's like I'm not saying they're one to one but like I don't know I think of like Kanye songs when he's like talking about porn stars getting paid more for like gangbangs and black dudes and stuff and it's like I don't know why that comes to mind it, it's very much like if you do the stuff that's kind of more taboo the stuff <laughs> that kind of like I mean obviously like we've, we've gotten to a point where we're like with certain things where like you're just set desensitized and I don't think this kind of wrestling would ever get desensitized in the same way that that Kanye is talking about, but like, <laughs> it, it, I mean, this is this is not the kind of thing that you would turn tune into. Like, WWE. no, this isn't going to be on TV, man. This is this is. Uh, I mean, CZW. I, I think it's CZW. Um, they like they hovered around like medium bigness, but they were never going. They were never getting like a TV deal or anything like that. Yeah, it's just fucking wild. And like, respect to Mickey Rourke for whatever here he did do, and like Necro Butcher like briefly enjoyed like a slight bump in like appearances and stuff. <laughs> following this, you know, the wrestler's own Necro Butcher. (laughs) He's a weird fucking dude, but god bless him so obviously randy wakes up in hospital he is told he had a heart attack he should stop wrestling immediately he almost died etc the frequency that mickey rock's butt is on display and just sort of him not looking the most glamorous i think we talked about this with no country for all men it's like it's this duality of the like you know because i mean he's used to for a living walking around shirtless it's like a glamorous thing but then it takes on this duality of like it's like a vulnerability thing and like a like a wounded old animal or something I don't know so it's like he really just threw himself a thousand percent into this yeah um, and his butt does not look good no it doesn't we learn his name is Robin Ramzinski uh, and he <laughs> he fucking insists the doctor calls him Randy and it's like this is such a thing like living the gimmick that is the like core part of this well I, I think I think it's it, it both living the gimmick but I also think it's kind of like this uh, what I think is kind of like something I really love about the movie is this undercurrent of kind of like his toxic masculinity kind of like showing itself in that he's kind of like obviously he's not afraid to be vulnerable at points in this movie but so much of it, it feels 
feels like he's kind of rejecting the name Robin because it's so much less manly yeah. than Randy. Yeah, which is um, hilarious in modern settings. But yeah, it was once upon a time Randy was like a big tough guy name. Yeah, and like yeah, Robin does. It, it, you know, it can also be a woman's name, which I think Randy can be as well. But yeah, like I think you're right. I think it's the the double edged thing of like he thinks Randy is a more manly persona, which is why he took it on. And also just like there are so many wrestlers that like can't let their their gimmick go and like we've talked about this as well like with Jason Bateman in in Juno like struggling to accept this chapter is over you will never be this rock star again or whatever but just the inability to let it go and like yeah no uh, call me Randy like you know I am still Randy the Ram Robinson and, and everything it's like you're not bro like I mean you are but what that is has changed <laughs> the promoter like leaving his earnings in an envelope at the desk and be like oh yeah see you next show it's like Jesus Christ this is a hospital <laughs> and then you see him with his fucking NES with this custom made wrestling game they built for him and everything and the kid telling him about I Call of Duty 4 yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, but I, I, I like that it, it's one of those things where like this scene it kind of comes off a little bit janky in that it is got very obviously kind of like ad-libbed but it's also like well what would a 11 year old kid want to talk about in 2008 would be well it's like you know someone play this game I own that I'm in so it's the only game I own so the kid is like you know remotely interested in playing Nintendo but it's like this is you know you can tell he doesn't like the game and he's just like oh, I just gave you an ass whooping don't you want a rematch he's like nah I'm good <laughs> so, yeah I love the I love the beat of him when he leaves the hospital he gets a taxi to go pick up his car from wherever the match wherever was, the show was. was. Yeah, yeah. and it's just this empty car park yeah. and it's just this yeah, depressing like, overhead shot of it's like this secret world type, you know like they all gather for these shows and for like in this specific context in this specific time he is still a star and then he's just walking around and no one knows who the fuck he is for the most part and it's yeah and I think the car thing really illustrates that as well of like you know on on Friday nights this place is rocking but now it's it's nothing like it's just fucking dead somewhere in New Jersey and then you also see him like trying to go for a light jog and just like doubling over in pain and he visits Cassidy again tells her about his heart attack and she makes the suggestion that he reconnect with his estranged daughter who we didn't even know he had until now and he reluctantly attempts to do it and she aggressively rebuffs him so you know you get Cassidy saying you know I can't be seen leaving with a customer like he he, he tells her what happened he's like oh can we go somewhere and talk and she's like I can't like walk out of this place with you that's, that's a real bad precedent but the heart attack phrase it's like okay fine you go out I'll meet you in five minutes or whatever and their dynamic is so fascinating to me because like you sort of go back and forth on like how she thinks of him because it's like when she's like leaving him at the end of this and she's like you're gonna be okay right and it's like I do feel she has a degree of fondness for him but it is it's like a favourite customer and the key word is still customer and she very clearly doesn't see him how he sees her it's kind of interesting to go back and forth and like as a first time viewer to think like you know is there gonna be this big like blow up where she's like fuck you man you're just some dude who comes in here I don't give a shit about you or is it gonna be revealed like okay I love you or whatever and it's like it's it's neither <laughs> it's both and it's neither like yeah I, it's what I really like about this performance is that it isn't like he isn't overstepping his boundaries because he is reading the situation right in a lot of ways but yeah. she's also got this kind of push pull where it's like she does have an affection for him whether or not that is a romantic affection or whether or not it's just like hey this is someone who understands me and I can I actually kind of like get emotionally close to him but I also like that she's kind of like she's only got one foot in this world the real reason is like I'm making money so I can move my son to somewhere where the schools are cheaper and I can have a good life and so I'm sacrificing this right now but I have no intention of staying here and doing this yeah. 
I'm, the rest do- of my 40s. I'm doing this because I have to, and like he is like clinging desperately to this thing he thinks he can still do. You know, obviously it's not quite the same because she didn't like grow up dreaming of being a, a professional stripper in the way he would grow up dreaming of being a professional wrestler. But you know, it's this sort of like I don't want to call it dirty, but you know, like kind of grungy like lifestyle. There is a definite. I mean, yeah, there, there are people who get into sex work for reasons of like empowerment and reasons yeah. of this is something that makes me feel good about myself mm. and she's definitely not no, that this is yeah and she this is this is a job this is a job that obviously she realizes that she is good at maybe she is kind of like in terms of what the clientele of this particular strip club want she yeah. is not necessarily what they're after but she realizes that she is a very attractive woman <laughs> who can utilize her sexuality to earn money even if she kind of like not resents it but kind of like it is it is very much kind of like this is a job not a yeah i mean she's fucking says like i'm not a stripper or like you think i'm this and she's like that's not who i am like i'm not this person yeah it's great but speaking of great evan rachel wood as stephanie uh, it was abby cornish recast at the last minute but good because she's great and like i said how i feel the length is about right and it's not like i think anything needs to be longer i maybe would concede that i think she needed a little bit more but like what she's giving us is fucking great yeah i think i think they the 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 only kind of like the, the two scenes i have an issue with are the scene with the kid in the in the trailer just because of kind of like it feels a lot looser than some of the other stuff in the movie and also this first scene with Evan Rachel Wood even though she's absolutely killing it Mm. I think they're kind of rushing along at kind of about 60 miles an hour to kind of like info dump all this information of their backstory so they can get to the kind of like more meaty emotional stuff in kind of like her next couple of scenes but like this this first confrontation where like she turns around and goes like here's our backstory right now and I'm very angry at you (laughs) because it is very like has he not seen for 20 years has he you kind of get the impression that like he has he was majorly in her life for a while and that he maybe was a sort of inconsistent presence but like before they actually start speaking it's like like is this the first time she's seen him as an adult like who knows she kind of makes this false assumption that he's coming to her to she's like you know you want me to take care of you like fuck you where were you you never took care of me where were you for all my birthdays you probably don't know where my birthday is like all of that is like valid but like she is actually wrong about why he's come to her um, yeah like she she thinks it's for the for the worst reasons and yeah. it's not that he's not coming there for for kind of like her to take care of him she's he's coming there because like he wants to mend this bridge because he realizes that he might not be around much longer i hmm. also just want to give props this movie for um letting queer women be queer on screen yeah I mean, obviously, obviously, Evan Rachel Wood was not out at the point where she took this movie on, and that was a couple of years later. But kind of like taking on this role and her role in True Blood, I think the writing was very much on the wall in terms of like her persona in kind of the upcoming years. But yeah, she's really fucking good in this, yeah. and she doesn't get to do anything this good in Westworld, sadly. So he seeks advice from Cassidy and she's like buy her a present get her clothes like that's a good like because he doesn't know what kind of music she's into he doesn't know like any of her hobbies and is she, she a goth is she preppy is she like oh yeah, yeah. what's what's she like is that uh she's a lesbian does that affect like, her? I, th- I think like, she's the aesthetic a choice 
lesbian? Does that affect any of this? And she's like, no. <laughs> so, well, I feel maybe it might. But before that, you do see him attending this, like, signing event for, like, quote-unquote legends. And these are a tra- They can be a tragic, tragic thing. Like, there are certain wrestlers that, like, work the signing circuit, as it were. And, like, seeing them have to set up their own, like, little stations and everything. And, like, I really like him looking around the room and it's like, he sees the crutch. He sees the wheelchair. He sees the catheter. And it's like, gee. Like, and he is by far the healthiest fucking one of them there. And we know he's not in a good way. So it's like this, this like ghost of Christmas future type thing. Yeah. And before she agrees to go with him, Cassidy is like, she's like rejected repeatedly by customers again and like then she's like grateful to see him and uh, you get the sense this is their relationship as well where it's like sometimes he can be a bit like he is in the first scene where he's like a little bit overzealous and she's like dude like fucking let me work but then there's probably nights like this where like no one is interested in her but she knows he's good for it but then you get his heart condition he's like yeah probably best I don't get an erection right now quite frankly and and, like she looks a little bit kind of like dejected by that even even though you don't want to put yourself worth on one men think of you she you kind of do in those situations where like when when you are literally like i am offering you sex and you keep on getting rejected it it kind of just wears you down in yeah. in terms of like i am putting myself in this very vulnerable space and yet i'm being constantly rejected and yeah. so she's like, the one person who she thinks won't reject her and then when like she does agree to go with him and everything and like when she shows up and he's like oh i almost didn't recognize you you look clean and it's like jesus <laughs> and, and saying should i call you pam or cassidy so it's like Oh, so he does know her real name, so they must have at some point talked about this. Um, and saying, you know, again, saying, like, you look so pretty in the daytime. I was like, oh, dude, you are <laughs> you are stumbling on the wrong side of this. Um, but, yeah, and she does look so different, like, turning up in the, like, the hat and the coat and everything. And I really love how much he loves that horrific green jacket. <laughs> it's one of my favourite things in the movie. And it's he's so like, terrible. hey, what do you think of this? And I was just like, ah. And he's like, that's got an S on it. And I was like, yeah, dude, read the room. And she's like, oh, maybe a nice peacoat. And he's like, I don't know, I'm liking the green jacket. I mean, it's, it's my favourite bit is, like, when he goes to give her the present, um, oh, he dude. gives her the he gives the coat first. And I genuinely can't figure out whether or not, like, he actually was going to give her one thing and not give her the other thing. Mm. Or was it always a joke? Or was it just like, I'll try the peacoat. And if she rejects it, then, or doesn't act enthused, then I'll give her the peacoat. I think he realised that she's right and went back later I guess I don't know because he doesn't walk out with it I don't think I think he walks out with just the green jacket but or maybe I'm wrong and then he of course convinces Cassidy Pam Pam Cassidy to go get a beer with him and she tells him how she's gonna quit and move and his awkward hell yeah dance with me baby like it's like oh you are so this guy who like yeah this was real fucking music because they're like saying that you know that Cobain pussy came and ruined everything and yeah like them just reeling off the generic big 80s bands like sounding like just someone's uncle or something I don't know I I, I, I love this scene it's because great. it's so it's much real. it's so much it so much is kind of like these two people are trapped in a nostalgic period that doesn't exist anymore. They're very much coding her as the like 80s stripper dancing to fucking Def Leppard and stuff. Like, I'm not saying that was like the heyday of stripping, but it's like that is very much a. I mean, it doesn't want the songs to come on and say that like, I've danced this song too many times or like <laughs> I, I know this song inside and out because I've done I've done this so much. So much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he does his little stripper dance. Which is just like needlessly like, oh, the, like everything got shit when like Kurt Cobain came on the scene and stuff like that. 
about or like mm-hmm. just this kind of like i hate the 90s vibe and fuck the 90s and this very much kind of like these are two people who are living in an, an idealized version of like the past and so like they're they're latching onto it i mean it, it it's weirdly one of those like kind of political statements mm-hmm. nowadays where like there are people going like oh don't you remember like how good we used to have it it's like yeah. but you didn't have it good no <laughs> like the music you're listening to isn't good you just like it because it symbolizes a better period of your life yeah because you were having a good time at that time you think everything from that time was great and it's like no not really <laughs> um and also like mickey rock is like good friends with axel rose so i think some of that is like you know doing him a solid and saying yeah fuck nirvana guns and roses forever he does try and kiss her she sort of returns the kiss, but then immediately escapes the situation. As I said, like, this back-and-forth dynamic they have is fascinating. He accepts retirement. Like, he cancels all of his wrestling bookings. He takes a weekend job for steady income. He has to wear a hairnet and a name badge with his real name on it that he really does argue about. And there's this masterful scene where he's, like, walking from the back and they put the audio of, like, a wrestling crowd. I love that it fades out As he steps through the curtains or it's, like, the whatever they have there. It's, like, the plastic curtain. I guess, but then it like cuts to silence. It's like, oh, yeah, well done. False expectations. It's, (laughs) it's again, it's that thing where like it's not even an action performance. It's just a combination of the kind of like fantastic cinematography from from Maurice Alberti, who is like a first time working with Aronofsky on this movie, because like normally his his regular cinematographer was off doing. uh, I think at this point probably doing stuff like Iron Man and Iron Man Two and stuff like that at the same time. Yeah, Mickey Rourke. I know, just constantly working with Mickey. Oh, apart from not doing this movie. But yeah, like it's just uh, everything technically kind of comes together in this scene. Mm. Um, That's great. It, That's... It's so good, and what like because again, it's not relying on Mickey Rourke. Like for a movie that so much is focused on, like the advertisement is the Mickey Rourke's name is almost as big as the wrestler mm. in terms of the title. Like it very much is a one hander with Marissa Tomei and Evan Rachel Wood as, as very much supporting actors. But there is interesting stuff going off in terms of like just how the movie shot, how the movie looks, what the movie's thinking about that does elevate it above being simply like a movie with a performance and you see him get into banter with customers a little bit like he is obviously like a professional showman so he has that charisma like he's he is good at talking to people and he like it, it, it he conducts himself uh, I think so yeah and he conducts yeah, like himself just... with that confidence of like hey hey what's going on and they're real customers some of them like I, I, there's a real daily counter and they had him behind it and then real people started approaching him trying to buy stuff and Darren was like, try. <laughs> like, try and serve him. Um, I love the bit where he, like, tells the guy to go long and he looks so perturbed. He looks he like he's to... trying to walk away. Like, he's like, no, I don't want to do this anymore. And then he, like, gets it in his car anyway. <laughs> and like, oh, hey, good looking and stuff like that. To this, like, I don't want to say he's an ugly man, but, you know. <laughs> it's just a change because it starts off so slow and him kind of, like, doing it in kind of the most dull way. And then by the end of it, he's having an absolute blast because no, he's no, no, interacting with people. And, like, maybe he would be a fucking nightmare. And you see it later. He's bad at the rush hour because he wants each one to be like a special sparkly, let's have a little joke and talk for a minute, like interaction where he does something silly. And it's like, that's not what you want when there's a big queue. Yeah, but as we know, people want us to give good customer service oh, like, yes. all the, the time. The most important thing. Sometimes good <laughs> customer service is like just giving them what they want and shutting the fuck up. Um, <laughs> I quit the company. I can say what I want. So he does try again with Stephanie. Uh, he gives her the presents. 
and she goes with him on a walk to like the, on, on like one of the Jersey boardwalks, and he apologizes for his absence. And this is all just great, like as you said. Like, I love I love how it's shot because it's like you you're focused on Mickey Rock's face, and like his eyes are welling up as he's kind of like saying like I'm a broken piece of meat but you just see her hair kind of like floating into the camera that shows like even though there is like probably someone with like a little handheld camera there kind of like shooting this they they are still having this conversation between each other like he's not talking to the camera he is talking to an actual person who's there and it feels so close and so intimate and just so damn good and saying like i'm alone and i deserve to be alone like these devastatingly like honest self-reflective statements like it's and then like her like linking arms with him like me everything yeah because like this this is this is like i prefer this because so much of this is unsaid in terms of like she's realizing a vulnerability that she's potentially never seen before yeah and so this is her kind of like letting her guard down and going like right i'm gonna let my dad back into my life like he is doing and saying the right things at this point that i need to trust him again yeah and it's like real fucking easy to sit there and be like the equivalent of like girl dump him or whatever you know just like fuck him he's made too many mistakes but like it's not as easy is that in real life having him there and like she probably has to actively try to not let him in and then like you know that he's making it like showing her that vulnerability in that moment and like them dancing together in the abandoned ballroom and everything which is, which is stunning and yeah. beautiful and amazing heck and... of a location they found there and just and also the symbolism of like you know him and a in a venue that is brought you know is long past its prime and everything and would have once been like all vibrant and everything and then what does he do he parties a little too hard he has to sleep all day he misses his dinner that they've arranged with her and she says i don't want to ever see you again and this all is triggered by him going to cassidy and her like trying to let him down gently and be like look dude i'm not what you think i am all of this and like he then lashes out with this ugly attempt to attempt to he's like well come on and fucking dance for me like here's the money like shake your tits and everything and it's like this just completely recontextualizing the relationship and like how repulsed she is by him in this moment and however many years of goodwill and like being a nice polite customer are like undone in a second I love that little beat of kind of like the security guard coming like dude come on and you think it's going to get aggressive but then the guy's just like oh no you're like they chill out the moment they're away from her and then this sort of causes him to go sit in the audience for a show and go for drinks afterwards with wrestlers and get coked up and bang the fuck out of a woman with a fireman fetish. Which I love is the fire a fetish great so weird much. Beat. I like that he's wearing the boots in the morning. <laughs> it's it, it just like her entire. It, it's so the single bed, the room being entirely decorated with like fireman stuff. The fact they covered up the ferret with. <laughs> with well, like, nocturnal. I think. So. I know, it's it's just it's just a wonderfully kind of like set design. Yeah. Weird. Like, what a weird be, but perfect. Because yeah. like because even then, even when they're at the thing, you think it's just like, oh, do you want to party like a fireman? You're like, right, what's that? <laughs> What does that mean? And I'm with him. I'm like, D- D- what? Sorry? Like, this isn't just like cool young person speak he's missing out on. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? And I, I love, like, when they're having sex in the bathroom and just the look of disgust from the woman's face when she walks in. It's yeah. just like, go get a room. It's like, we're not fucking stopping. So, and then, yeah, Stephanie just devastated like that she waited in the restaurant for two hours and we we are trained to see these these moments coming in films like it is kind of a cliche this like oh he he genuinely didn't mean to but he fucked up this time and her line of like i can't cry for you like it's so 
true to life and like i feel most movies want you to be like like root for him and be like oh come on he didn't mean it let him in it's like nah man like so that we don't know what their life has been like and like how how big it was for her to briefly let him back in and then like in life sometimes you you don't get a million second chances and like he yeah, fucked I, up I, he fucked up i love the kind of like it's such a casual kind of fuck up like you know immediately that he's fucked up and this is the last straw mm-hmm. um but i love like when they're on the floor and she's like i don't hate you i don't love you i feel nothing for you yeah. is so heartbreaking yeah. and everwood would absolutely fucking kills this scene and she's yeah. so good and I, while she doesn't get quite as much as like marissa tomei in terms of characterization like these kind of like three or four scenes that she has in this movie she yeah. is so good in all of them you feel every um, minute of her performance it's, yeah it's even even if i'm highly distracted by the set direct decorator kind of going like what would hipster lesbians be into in 2008 <laughs> <laughs> she's like oh vampire weekend we'll just put a massive vampire weekend poster in the background <laughs> yeah it's just and like him like pouring at her hair and like saying i know i know you hate me yeah it's it's a heartbreaking little scene and like he kind of this is it like you know his life of choices has led him to this fuck up and he kind of given how it ends like this is the triggering point for sure like I think he had this romantic idea in his head of like I will get Cassidy away from this life and raise her son and my daughter and everything will be great and like sorry dude you can't just will that into existence like people have autonomy like they are not props in your little play of your life so yeah he quits his job he signs back up (laughs) He quits his job in spectacular fashion. Yes, like, slams his hand into the fucking slicer and, like, cuts his thumb. Yeah, he's got... Coats himself in blood, kicks things as he leaves, swears at people. It's just a a terrific outburst that's so theatrical in kind of, like, exactly the way, like, he... he, I mean, to use a wrestling term, he does a heel turn. Ah, um, look at you go. In the middle of the shop. It's good, it's over the top, but... I really um, like the little less, little more lady like you know less he's like a little less a little more and then he eats it to get the last and i'm like waiting for her to be like did you just fucking eat my pasta because he's like chewing it while talking to her but she just lets that go i mean customers don't pay attention to what you're doing behind the uh, the register no they do not can't tell that story ever aronofsky's parents (laughs) are i think two of the annoyed deli customers that's nice and then it's that dude that recognizes him and he's like not now man i've been through a lot in the last few weeks and and like this is not the time and you get the idea that like on some level or in a different context he would love to be recognized and someone to be like ah i know who you are but it's like not now i am at an emotional like (laughs) powder keg moment i kind of am trying to leave this behind me and not be like, he has so desperately only been this thing, and now he has tried real hard to not be it, and it's blowing up in his face. And yeah, this dude, like... So yeah, he signs back up for the anniversary match, and Cassidy does come and try and talk him out of it, but he ends up... I kind of don't want to talk about the end until the end, because it's so its own thing. But yeah, like, her coming to apologise to him, but staying firm about, you know, I have a line, I can't cross it, and her then quitting her job, like, mid-routine, almost, and there is this little moment where she walks out, and, and one of the other girls is like, oh, you left your shoes. And there is an old tradition in wrestling where when a wrestler retires, they leave their boots in the ring, 
and I have to think that was a conscious nod to that, that she leaves uh, her shoes. I mean, I guess it would have been more poignant if she'd left them on the stage, but she tries to save him, quite frankly. Like, she buys the ticket and, like, grabs him just before he's gonna go out, and it's, like, shaking her head, like, dude, you can't do this. Like, you're, you're very hurt. And it's not that... And again, in another movie, she would have stayed and watched him from the stage and be like, wow, look at you in this setting. You're magnificent, but she can't... She's got no interest in watching him kill himself in the ring, and she's just out of there. It's great, quite frankly. Like, and like that, that's the end for them. Like, she's like, I'm fucking here, man. Like, I came. Like, I, I've kept you at arm's length, and I'm finally, like, willing to maybe. I don't know if she's, like, coming to him to be like, hey, maybe let's go be a couple, but, like. She d- definitely to kind of, like, take their relationship to a different level to one they have yeah. at the moment. And he, but he just kind of made the decision, which is, like, no, I'm, I've tried to have this normal life outside the ring. I've tried to be mundane. I've tried to get away from it, but this is. Yeah. the only thing that works for me I need to be the big strong man and go out like this and yeah like the world doesn't give a shit about me and she's like I'm fucking here and it's like Ugh. it is a tricky thing where like when you are courting attention and it isn't immediately there to just lash out in return and then when genuine attention has come your way you either stubbornly won't take it or like just can't see the I don't know but it's it's this haunting little moment so this this show is they are backstage at Ring of Honor which would have been the biggest company available to them if they are working like the non-national like the independent level of wrestling this was the biggest independent wrestling company in North America at the time so it was big that they were doing this and I think these are the shows that Nicolas Cage was coming to he wasn't going to the like 50 people in a weird little town in New Jersey shows he was coming to these and there are a bunch of Ring of Honor wrestlers like dotted about and some of them are now quite big famous guys who work for WWE and stuff it's kind of wild seeing them now and looking less pretty than they do and playing his opponent the Ayatollah uh, Ernest the Cat Miller who was really nothing in wrestling and it's kind of wild that they were like yeah we'd like you to be this big rival character I don't know maybe he like got into acting and they they found him that way but it's kind of weird but him coming out and you know he does his big entrance and and he he gets on the mic and he he does his like heartfelt speech about how you know he is old and he is feeling it and he's not as pretty as he used to be and but the people will dictate when he retires and it's real and raw and like I think the crowd was sort of booing him a bit in real life and then Aronofsky had to be like guys this is like super important for the movie and like this is his big final match and everything and then the crowd chanted we fucked up we fucked up and like got really into it for them for the rest and like fair play to them like they're not doing the best job in the world in any of Mickey Rourke's like I, I, my hat is sincerely off to him because these are like this is him doing all of this. I think he can pull off some of the big, the big moments, but like the moment to moment stuff is very. But I mean, they were zooming right in, so it kind of has to be deliberate so that it's not too obviously fake. But yeah, but the crowd being so into it does really help, and like you get this sense that it's like, hey, he has been performing in front of small crowds that like barely know who he is anymore or whatever. But like this is the big hero's welcome type moment and like look it has all gone perfectly as you imagined like you are back in front of a crowd that is loving you and him just clutching at his chest and like there's the like ringing in his ears and struggling through all of this stuff 
is like, you can feel it coming long before it does and you get like Ayatollah being like hey let's let's take it home which means going home it means finishing the match and you said there is this expression of like going home early where it's like look so this isn't going well let's just fucking end this and he says like we've given them enough and he's like having to like do moves on himself and then be like just fucking pin me man he's like no I want to do the ram jam and it's like because that's his big finisher he jumps off the top rope and it, it leads us to this gorgeous ending yeah like I, the, the, this whole segment is so so good because yeah. it's so close and so intimate yeah. and the, the entire time you know the match is going south like you can obviously like Bob the Ayatollah in a wonderful bit of like he just he looks vaguely foreign so we'll just make him be I know like, this dude is, is African American and they're like yeah go play a fucking Arab stereotype like <laughs> I, I can see why some foreign dignitaries were offended by this movie but but like there's the thing I love is that it's so much of a kind of commentary on oh it, this for time. real like this is like one of the most famous wrestlers was uh, Yokozuna who his his gimmick was he was like a sumo wrestler and they dressed him like he was from Japan dude was fucking Hawaiian or Samoan I think like and it's just like yeah you look vaguely foreign you get to be this stereotype but it's like yeah. it's very true to, like they did not do this with racist intentions they did this as a commentary on like real life like get mad at wrestling in the 80s don't get mad at like the wrestler the movie which did yeah. not <laughs> i mean to be honest the people the people who are commenting on are the kind of people who are like don't understand subtlety and nuance and just kind <laughs> of like take a depiction of islam as like at face value in terms of like any depiction of it is being crypt- critical of it as opposed yes. to <laughs> i mean like, he does break the flag over his name yes he does he again does. this is wrestling shit this this happens um, like... but yeah this this whole segment is gorgeous oh. i can only imagine Imagine being distracted watching it in the audience where like you have someone walking around with a camera in the yeah. in the ring filming them do well, these things. They, they have cameras there anyway for like taping the DVDs and stuff, but yeah, being like right up in the ring is, is definitely not a thing. And and I think this is the longest stretch we get here. Clint Mansell's score for I think he only wrote kind of like about eight or nine minutes worth of, of score, which they kind of perfectly deploy a bit in the movie. It's just this kind of like nice slow build. I mean it's not as bombastic as his fountain or his um <laughs> or is it rocking for a dream score both of which have kind of like become trailer music in the years since yeah just the um, stuff of legend yeah and and obviously we'll we'll definitely touch on uh, clip man's <laughs> self score next week um <laughs> in our episode which is probably his best non-Aronofsky score but yeah they're just like everything kind of builds in this with him kind of like clutching his heart and Bob the Ayatollah is like lying on the floor kind of going like pin me pin me and he climbs up onto the onto the ropes yeah, and like... looks out to see whether or not Casty or Pam is, is watching him and she's not there it's a like bravely not good shot almost like it's this almost clumsy zoom but it just really works here and just sort of looking around the crowd and just like taking this all in and like I, I think he says in, in the front like that you are my family like this is my family or whatever and it's like you know everything has just gone so badly for him as he's attempted to not be the ram and here he is just to rapturous applause they love it they want to see him do it and like he knows I probably shouldn't do this but like this means so much to me and that just beautiful ending of him jumping over the camera and just you see like to, to the very tips of his boots fly over the top yeah and then it fades to black you hear the crowd 
you, you don't know. And you like, don't know. You don't they, know. It's so they, hard cut to silence. Yeah. And then... And is this meant to be the hushed silence of the audience? Is this man has died in front of them? Or is it just, it doesn't matter. This is what he chose. This is the narrative here. And they filmed him hitting the move, getting the pin, and surviving. But I believe in an AMA, Aronofsky confirmed that he dies. N- neither of those matter, because the text... Yeah, they're not, they're, not on, they're not on the screen. It doesn't matter. Like, this is the movie. This is the way it ends. It ends with... No conclusive answer either way. You can choose to see whether or not he lives. You can choose to see whether or not he yeah. dies. It's however you prefer to see it. Yeah. I, I don't want to think about it. Like no, my, I don't my, pa- like, my, my partner, my partner asked me last night whether or not I think he lived or died. I said I don't think it's important. I think the important thing in this movie is this kind of like man trying desperately to come back to like what his glory days were and succeeding for fifteen glorious seconds. Yeah. Or, like, yes. Exactly. He will live. Or, he will literally live or die by this moment. And I have slated the sort of Indian ending and like we we talked at length about no country for old men and like i like it here like i i think there are times where you can have an ambiguous ending but still have a a satisfying narrative because the end of his story was right there like this is what this whole movie has built towards it's not almost an ancillary character talking about a dream 10 years later or whatever yeah it's beautiful and bruce springsteen's song the wrestler is is a gorgeous gorgeous song it's you know if you've ever seen a one trick pony you've seen me like Oh. Yeah, this this I I love this movie. I, I I as I said at the start of this episode, I think Requiem, Fountain, Wrestler, and Black Swan are all like five star masterpieces. Um, Aronofsky's the only director I can say has got like four movies, which I would gladly put in like a top ten movies of all time. There are probably like other directors who I adore. Like I mean, I love Fincher, I love Quaron, all very kind of like basic film bro kind of like people to love. But you called, you called Quaron your favorite working. Uh... He is my favorite. He's my favorite working like i've i've enjoyed both noah and mother but i don't think either of them are. i read the goddamn plot synopsis for mother and i was deeply confused Um, mother mother is exactly my kind of thing i i walked out of that cinema feeling like i had been emotionally abused for about two hours or however long it is i really like it i think jennifer lawrence is fantastic in it um but it's also not a movie which i would recommend to like most people to watch i think it would piss me off <laughs> I, you know, that's the thing. I think I think it would piss most people off. I was just very much like watching that movie. It's it. I I, I think it's less. Look, I get it. You want you say to Aronofsky, "Fuck me up, daddy," and like <laughs> he does. <laughs> he, do, he, he knows does, he what does. you like. I am. I'm so sad that he didn't get to do a fucking Wolverine movie. Instead, know, he did. I, instead, I he did was... fucking Noah of all things with. <laughs> <laughs> with like Emma Stone, Emma, sorry, Emma Stone yeah. with Emma Watson and Ray Winston it's um... I think I think his Wolverine would have been incredibly interesting but if Mangold hadn't gotten to make that incredibly dull Wolverine he may not have made that incredibly lovely Logan so I mean yeah I mean, it, it's a trade off I've got no idea where Aronofsky's up to at the moment we'll touch more on Aronofsky and you know, kind of you know what Aronofsky wouldn't have done he wouldn't have done the whole fucking weird racially charged farm clone fight weirdness <laughs> bullshit that wasn't necessary in the otherwise good father-daughter uh, yes. story. Yeah. Anyway, that's a completely different podcast. Um, yeah, I, I love this movie. I think this movie is... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this was probably one of the first kind of like big boy Oscar movies that yeah. I... It's wild to me that this somewhat niche interest of mine got a fucking movie that is good 
<laughs> and, and like I've seen so many awful basketball movies I've seen so many bad video game adaptations whatever and to see something like this that is not you know it was once one of the most popular things in the world and you know they still have millions of fans or whatever but it's a very different thing. it's not cool and to see it get a, a, a light shined on it and not the big thing that everyone knows but this like other corner of it the independent wrestling that was going on at this time and was like artistically wonderful um, and to see it treated with reverence and presented to the public and they didn't have to like preface it with anything like they just presented it as is and that people took to it and that it's it's good and popular and you know I mean it didn't make a ton of money but like it's a well regarded thing and it's like this is cool that I mean it, it made it made 44 million off of like what budget it had it got two Oscar nominations both of them for acting I think it definitely should have got some more technical stuff yeah. but yeah you know like as someone who was reading a Transformers comic on the way home wrestling is the most embarrassing thing I like and to see it like here in something that is actually good thank you for picking it I, I thought we were going to be watching Requiem which I wouldn't have minded I've seen Requiem I don't dislike it but yeah you pick the one that is more up my alley yeah I, 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 the first thing is I could, I could have done any of the three Aronofsky movies from this decade I went with this one just because it holds a special place in my heart in, 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 just in terms of like it, this is probably like I'd seen Dark Knight but most of the stuff I was seeing in cinema in like 2000 Eight and 2007 was kind of like very obvious movies like oh I'm going to see superhero stuff and I'm going to see big budget comedies and all these other things and this was the first time that I kind of went out of my way to go like I'm going to watch a movie that will be nominated for Oscars at, at the cinema. I used to go um, and see stuff like this once upon a time and now nothing can make me leave the house. <laughs> I mean but... I mean, I, mean I, I, I say probably the first like I saw Benjamin Button in cinema I saw Slumdog Millionaire in cinema like I was seeing things that were like Oscar baity but this one is probably kind of like one of those kind of like firsts well this has been emotional and special but we must leave it behind who knows what happened to randy the ram robinson what we do know is next week we are gonna have a very fun time <laughs> talking about sam rockwell in moon i am very much looking forward to it moon is fun yeah I, I i watched moon probably less than a year ago at this point it's yeah. just a really nice british movie i like to um, watch moon every like two years and just be like oh man still good nah. just a shame that duncan <laughs> Jones has not done anything close to as good as this since. Do not talk shit about Mute. <laughs> did, you, did you like Mute? I haven't seen Mute. I'll talk shit about Mute. I didn't see it. That is for next week, though. In the meantime, go to entertherealworld.com. Like, comment, subscribe. Get us on Twitter. Will be movies. Ask us questions if you want. We will answer them. Just, just like six people that follow that account. But I know, but we retweet it from the, from our accounts, which yeah. have more followers. There you go. But, you know, if you ever want to get asked, ask us dumb film questions. Ask there. And listen to all the stuff we got on the site. And, yeah, next week we're going to space, I think. But are there movies for us to watch on the in-flight space travel, Ben? Are there movies? Yeah, there will will be. And there will be Kevin Spacey. Oh.